0: Hello and welcome to Doctomy. My name is Heather. And I'm Kathleen. Jesus. (laughs) That time it was loud. And this week we are discussing the confession killer. Before we get into that, you can follow us on Twitter and or join our Facebook group. Info for that can be found in the show notes. If you would like to email us comments or suggestions or donate to us at PayPal, our email address is doctomypod at gmail.com. We appreciate any help. Back to the show. The Confession Killer premiered on Netflix on December 6, 2019, and was directed by Robert Kenner and Taki Oldham. It's one I've wanted to cover, but it is just so long. It really is. And it's really rough to look at this guy. <laughs>
1: it's, he's not your average middle-aged dude no. to look at, unlike that one guy said.
0: <laughs> but after he was such a big focus in our last episode, we might as well just take the plunge. Right away, we are introduced to Phil Ryan, who you might remember from our last episode. He would later go on to be the sheriff for Wise County in Texas, and also worked as a consultant for the show Walker, Texas Ranger.
1: What?
0: (laughs) But at this point in his career, he is working as an actual Texas Ranger, so it explains why he was asked to be a consultant. We have listeners outside of the U.S., so if you're unfamiliar with the Texas Rangers, they are a investigative state police and also a baseball team. It's very confusing. But just know baseball players are not solving these crimes. One of the counties he is in charge of is Monte County. And you see the name and you think it would be pronounced Montal. Montague. like Romeo and Juliet, Montague and Capulets. But no, no, no. This is Texas where nothing is pronounced as it would seem. Monte County is in North Texas, right on the border of Oklahoma. There's lots of farming there with a population of less than 18,000, so it's boring.
1: It is small.
0: <laughs> it's one of those where are like, are we in Oklahoma yet? In 1982, Phil has been with the Texas Rangers for a couple years and is investigating the disappearance of a missing 82-year-old woman named Kate Ridge. I will say, don't look up that name. Because there is apparently a porn actress with the same name. Or do look up that name. I <laughs> but mean. not if you're trying to find information for this. I was like, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe Google,
1: like I do, where you do the person's name and then
0: murdered. <laughs> 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 Which is real good for my search history. Her family right away tells Phil that they suspect a man named Henry Lee Lucas, who had been living with Kate for some time. While they're searching for Kate, all they really find of her is her purse. There are some areas of Texas where if you're searching for a body, the chances of finding it are slim. It is just so desolate. It's big. Even when we were driving west, like, you had to keep an eye on the gas gauge because gas stations were just so far and few between or just sketchy as fuck.
1: Yes. (laughs) And literally, I think Texas might be one of the few states that you can drive for like a day or more and still be in Texas.
0: I mean, like. We're north of Dallas, and when we went to New Mexico, it was like six and a half hours just to get out of Texas. Yes, it's insane. (sighs) After a month of searching for Kate, that's when Phil discovers there's also a 15-year-old girl missing who had been in the care of Lucas. The girl is named Frida Lorraine Powell, and yet goes by the name Becky. (laughs) I mean... Why not? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you do you okay let's just take a moment here because even in this series they refer to becky as his girlfriend or child bride she's 15 he's in his 40s it's fucking gross you can't call an underage girl his girlfriend if he's anything over the age of 18 it's disgusting yeah (laughs) she is a victim Lucas is a great suspect he had been in contact with Kate and Becky and they know he's committed murder before because he's been to prison for killing his own mother they bring him in and question him but there's just not much to hold him on except that he has a warrant out for him in Michigan which they don't even know about Yeah, they just
1: kind of get him to tell them
0: yes I think all they said was don't you have a warrant he's like yeah out of Michigan and they're like oh okay
1: (laughs) no 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 he was like is this about that warrant and he's like oh yeah was that out of florida or something and he's like oh no that'd be in michigan
0: (laughs) it's like great detective work (laughs) he stole a car while on probation (laughs) as one does he's a fucking idiot so after some time in custody he admits to killing kate takes them out to where he killed her and then to the apartment he, s- he had been staying at and shows them the fire stove where he burned her body and they find like pieces of bones or something and then he takes them to where they find Becky's remains four days later he pleads guilty to murder and then asks the judge well what are we going to do about the other hundred men- women I murdered like oh shit
1: yeah that it was just like mic drop everyone's yeah, just I love, like
0: what they, the footage they show of the judge going like "Whoa, what, what, what?" Like, Did he say this? So one hundred. <laughs> safe to say that all hell breaks loose on this tiny area, and poor Phil Ryan is stuck listening to this asshole confess to all these murders, and has to sit there while Lucas chain smokes and doodles pictures of his victims.
1: <laughs> He's not. Uh, what was that? What? what was the something little? Samuel Little.
0: Yes. He's no artist like him. One of those pictures looked exactly like Betty White. How did nobody catch that? (laughs) Phil does his job correctly and takes all the information he's received from Lucas and gets into contact with law enforcement all over to try and see if any of this info matches with known cases. And this is when Sheriff Jim Boutwell is introduced to the story. I have never said anything nice about this man. He is the worst. Now, we've talked about Jim Boutwell before in episode 34 when we covered Tower, about the UT Tower shooting, and then also in our last episode. Yeah. Didn't he come up? Yeah. He gets around. I still don't have anything nice to say about him. He's a shitty cop who just wants to be in the spotlight. He has been working on a spree of unsolved murders along I-35 between Austin and Dallas, And as soon as he hears about this guy confessing to crimes all willy-nilly, he goes to James B. Adams, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety and head of the Texas Rangers, to ask for a task force to be set up to process Lucas's confessions. And the request is granted and headed up by another Texas Ranger named Bob Prince. It makes no sense. Phil Ryan has a rapport with this guy and knows he's full of shit. And yeah, let's just hand this case over to a stranger. Right, just, yeah. You know. Not that Phil Ryan wanted anything to do with them anyway, but still. He just said he wanted to, like, go back to his ranch working or something. Uh, and, quote, from that point on, you never saw Henry without Boutwell. So, yeah, this group, this group is taking everything that Lucas says and just goes with it. And this is when the 100 murders turn into eventually 600-plus. Because that seems so fucking plausible. 600 people and nobody suspected this guy of anything. He's a fucking idiot. (laughs) He couldn't even get away with like one murder. You think (laughs) he got away with 600? And in return for all of these confessions, Lucas is allowed extra privileges such as free time outside his cell. Milkshakes. (laughs) Milkshake. Um, A TV and a strawberry milkshake for every murder victim he claims. That's a lot of milkshakes. How is that a good idea? My child
1: would confess to murder if I told her I'd give her a milkshake every time she said yes.
0: Next up in this, we have Hugh Ainsworth, who we also discussed last episode. I love this dude. Yes, he's my favorite. (laughs) He had just co-published his first book, The Only Living Witness, on his many years interviewing Ted Bundy. Turns out Jim Boutwell was a fan of the book and gives permission for Hugh to come down and interview Lucas all he wants anytime. And as we will find out, it's a good thing that he does. Hugh has the best quote out of this entire series. Quote Lucas was just a dirtball. I was horrified by the smell. He was one eyed and his other eye dripped. He had three, maybe four teeth. <laughs> Fucking great.
1: Which is entirely accurate. Like, the man, I mean, dental
0: work is expensive, but my man had no teeth. But remember our last episode where the investigator described him as an average-looking guy? Yeah! Like, does that sound average-looking?
1: This does not sound like a man who girls are going to willingly have sex (laughs) with or
0: get in the car with. After drinking beer and fried chicken. That's, no. No! No! And he was the one who brought the Japanese film crew to interview Henry. You know, the crew that Lucas confessed to about how he murdered women in Japan, and when pressed on how he got to Japan, he said he drove there? <laughs> 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 He's not the sharpest crayon <laughs> no. in the box. We get some background information about Lucas's childhood, and it's not pretty. He was born August 23, 1936 in Blackburg, virginia to an alcoholic dad and a violent mom who did sex work which there's nothing wrong with that but she forced her kids and husband to watch
1: which is just just such a weird thing like i couldn't imagine that's a weird kink yeah like
0: can we all agree on that
1: yeah i mean i just that's that's a bit too much
0: the husband yeah it happens not to me personally (laughs) but the kids no it's a little too far (laughs) His dad's career wasn't that much better. He passed out drunk on a railroad track and lost his legs when a train ran over him, and resorted to selling pencils on the street.
1: But <laughs> well, how much is he charging for those pencils? I mean, what probably do you make a him? nickel. I don't yeah, know. I mean, what are you? How much are you possibly making? Well, I
0: think I remember. Well, his mom only charged like fifty cents, so. It was like the 30s and 40s, you know? War. You did what you had to do. 50 cents? (laughs) Lucas lost an eye at the age of 10 and dropped out of school when he was 13. Shortly after... I hate laughing. Shortly after the death of his dad due to hypothermia after he passed out drunk during a blizzard. (laughs) It's rough. But I mean, if you pass out, if you're so drunk that a train can run you over and you lose your legs, passing out in a blizzard doesn't seem that much different.
1: You you would think that you would turn your life around. You'd be like, Oh, that was <laughs> real pretty like oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm gonna I'm gonna really like shape up and <laughs> just get my shit together and it's gonna be great. No, I'm just going to, you know, get drunk again and pass out And the Well, it's not
0: like his wife is a peach. And thus began his drifting across the U.S. of A. June 10th, 1954, he was convicted on over a dozen counts of burglary in and around Richmond, Virginia, and was sentenced to four years in prison. He escaped in 1957 and was captured three days later and was eventually released on September 2nd, 1959, where he moved to Tecumseh, Michigan to live with his half-sister, Opal. During this time, he was engaged to a pen pal that he met while he was locked up. And when his mom found out about this during a Christmas visit, she was pissed and they argued about it for weeks.
1: Love after lockup.
0: I guess she wanted him to move back home and take care of her. I don't know. I mean, These
1: <laughs> he could do that with his new bride.
0: <laughs> These arguments finally ended on January 11, 1960, when according to Lucas... His mom hit him in the head with a broomstick, and he retaliated by stabbing her in the neck and running away. Well, it's Opal, like, you know, a knife for an eye. He says he went to hit her and didn't realize he had the knife in his hand, but... <laughs> went to hit her with his fist. I, I don't know. With a blade. Opal returns to the house and finds their mother alive, but in a pool of blood, and by the time the ambulance shows up, the mom is dead. She didn't even die from the stab wound. It ended up being a heart attack oh god (laughs) it's a double whammy (laughs) Lucas is eventually arrested and claims self-defense which fails and he is sentenced to up to 40 years for second degree murder and after 10 years he's released from prison due to overcrowding which cool
1: (laughs) maybe move him to a new prison that has more room
0: (laughs) episode 2 we start off in Lubbock, Texas which yuck where we meet who seems to be the sweetest woman, Joyce Lemons. I looked her up and yeah, unfortunately she did pass away in May, 2021, but at least she was given the chance to appear in this, to talk about her daughter, Debbie Williamson's case, August 24th, 1975. Debbie joins her family to go out to dinner to celebrate her dad's birthday. The family drops her off at her home that she shares with her husband at around 8:30, and that is the last time she is seen alive. Her husband arrives home from work at 1 a.m. and discovered her body right outside their back door that they used as the main entrance at their house. She had suffered 17 stab wounds, and her body had been drugged 25 feet from the carport where the attack had originated. I'll link an article in the show notes that has a lot of detail about the crime and has a diagram of the crime scene. Because it's kind of... The house is really weird, the way it is. Uh, it's not it's like the, the front of the house, it's like a side of the house. It's... You know how those those houses were back in yeah. the old days, nine years after this murder, with absolutely no leads, the police called Debbie's parents to announce they had a confession. We go back to Lucas being interviewed by Hugh, and he straight up says he looks to Jim Boutwell as a friend, not a sheriff. What the fuck yeah it's it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I heard the local sheriff was not only letting a guy at this point who has confessed to 40 murders walk around the office with no handcuffs, but the dude also considers you a friend, I'd vote that fucker out. But it's okay because, yeah, he murdered all these people, but he wants to be a good guy and do the right thing. (laughs) It's a little late for that. (laughs) Yeah. They even have him on phone duty to call up these other police stations to help solve their cases. It's just absolutely baffling.
1: Yeah, it's like he's
0: another part of the task force instead of a criminal. It's just fucking bizarre. So police from all over the country come down to Texas to talk to him about any unsolved cases they have. But because he's killed over 600 people, he's not going to remember all of them. So they give him pictures of the victims and the crime scenes to help him remember And I know what you're thinking, isn't that kind of dumb to just give this guy evidence of a crime scene so that he knows what happened and could falsely confess? No, of course not. Why would he do that? Who would falsely confess to murders even though it happens all the goddamn time? Hugh talks about how the police would send in full photo albums of their crime scenes and Lucas would just be sitting there flipping through the pages like it's a magazine. Cops would show up the next day to interview him, and he'd have all the facts of the case ready to go. He confesses to six murder cases a day, and you don't question that. It's insane. That's just, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> I just, I can't. To add to the insanity of Bob Prince and Jim Bowell, we also have Lucas's spiritual advisor, Sister Clemmie. She's interesting. He would just have absolute free reign to talk to her, and for this gross guy who's never had a woman really paid any attention to him, he was just all on board with her. Anytime they had a case he didn't want to confess to, they would just send her in to talk to him and convince him that it was the right thing to do to confess, and give these families closure.
1: Even if you didn't do it?
0: Of course, now she's just like, well, I just did as I was told. All this time, he's been confessing to murders that carry life sentences, which mean nothing when he's already been sentenced to life for the murder of Kate Rich and Becky Powell. So it's really not a big deal. Until he confesses to the murder of a Jane Doe that goes by the moniker of Orange Socks. Orange Socks, who in August 2019 was finally identified by the DNA Doe Project as 23-year-old Deborah Jackson, was found naked except for her orange socks. It's Very clever. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and thrown over a guardrail into a culvert off Interstate 35 in Georgetown, Texas on either October 30th or 31st, 1979. I think they kind of agreed it might have been the 31st. Right. I I think that was the census. And this murder was part of the group of unsolved murders off I-35 that Jim Bowell had been trying to solve when they first heard about Lucas. And because we now know her name, I will continue to call her Debbie Jackson throughout this. I know during that they kept calling her orange socks which is just rude well but if you don't have a name for her oh yeah I keep forgetting that it was, this was like so old, right after yeah. yeah. so it's no surprise when Lucas confesses to this murder it's a case Jim's been working on for years I'm sure he had the files just sitting around his office and oh look this murderer that confessed to countless crimes and has been able to just walk around freely in your office and go through whatever crime scenes he wants confesses to it awesome he's so lucky it's flawless really (laughs) when jim's around lucas just confesses to everything and yet when it's just him and hugh he's denying everything like how do you not just record that conversation but i feel like that really probably wouldn't matter anyway
1: (laughs) no they wanted
0: it to be accurate they wanted it to be right he even says he was in florida when deborah jackson was murdered Hugh, being the great journalist he is, travels to Jacksonville, Florida. Again, ooh. When Lucas claimed he was working at the time, and does in fact find proof
1: that he was fucking there and he was working
0: <laughs> the night before the murder, he had cashed a check, and Hugh finds a time card that show he had been working just hours before she would have been murdered.
1: And and what does Bowell say? He says, "Well." that's just when their bodies were found it's not necessarily when they were killed it's like okay sure he just traveled back and forth that quickly as like a drifter the
0: other excuse was well somebody else did that time card for him and then they asked the boss hey are you the one who saw him working that day and he goes yes so you're accusing this guy of lying it's all a conspiracy Hugh takes this information to Jim Bowell, who just blows him off. This is a death penalty case, and even though Lucas is a total piece of shit, he shouldn't die for a crime he didn't even commit. So Hugh takes his evidence to Lucas's attorneys, Parker McCullough and Don Higginbotham. <laughs> Those just sound like fake Texas lawyer <laughs> names they asked lucas why he would confess to this murder and his excuse was he wanted to commit legal suicide because he felt so guilty for killing becky the only woman woman (laughs) let's make it clear she's a child girl to ever show him any kind of love or affection again she was 15 and probably terrified of this dude who had apparently fallen in love with her when she was 10 so take that with a grain of salt You've had a 10-year-old daughter, right? Yeah, like
1: that's (laughs) disgusting. I just can't.
0: His logic is if he commits suicide, he won't go to heaven to be with Becky. So his loophole is to be killed by the state and then he'll go to heaven. Like nobody's going to check that out. He's not going (laughs) to heaven. Even though he definitely killed at least three people, they'll ignore that if somebody else kills him. It's fourth grade educated drifter logic. (laughs) These poor lawyers. No lawyer wants to lose a case. So to have your client like openly refuse to help with his own case. He's like working (laughs) against you. (laughs) Has to be frustrating. They go to Florida interview witnesses who say Lucas was there during the crime and interview Lucas's traveling buddy, Otis Toole, who was also in prison. If you thought Henry Lee Lucas was fucking dumb and ugly, you have no idea. (laughs) And yes, he does talk like this. He had been arrested in Florida two months before Lucas had been arrested. And yet with both of these men locked up on murder charges, they're allowed to call and talk to each other. They're BFFs. We'll get to Otis Tool's story at the end. As soon as Lucas started getting attention and media coverage, Tool gets jealous and starts making up even more shit. It's like that asshole person who, no matter how shitty your day is going... They have to one-up you. They have to one-up you. (laughs) He also starts confessing to unsolved murders and that he helped Lucas with some of his murders. And on top of all that shit, they're also cannibals.
1: (laughs) I like that phone
0: conversation
1: when he's like, well, why did I eat that?
0: (laughs) Why did I eat that one? Oh, it it was good once you put barbecue sauce on it. (laughs) It was so weird and fake. Oh, Henry. It's just the way he talks. Why would I do that? Oh, Henry. I love you. April 1984, Lucas goes to trial for Deborah Jackson's murder, even though they have tape proof of Boutwell feeding Lucas information about the murder and his excuses. I was just refreshing his memory about the details. (laughs) And all of these witnesses, including his boss, say that he was in Florida when the murder occurred. He's found guilty and sentenced to death. Of course he is. Who were these people on the jury?
1: Uh, <laughs> it's Texas.
0: I like the news announcer who said the only one smiling was the defendant. And I was like, no, bro, that was his normal ass dumb face. <laughs> <laughs> and after his convec- convection, <laughs> he's an oven. After his conviction is when he takes his taxpayer-paid vacation around the country that we discussed in the last episode. Let's take note of the Attorney General for the state of California who said after Henry confessed to 15 murders up and down the state, quote, it almost defies belief. (laughs) Sure does, buddy. So we go back to Lubbock when the second episode of the series began to discuss Debbie Williamson's case. Joyce Lemon's talks about how after he confessed to the murder of her daughter they went into the police station to read over the confession and right away they found inconsistencies the biggest one probably being how he says he went into the house through a sliding glass door which would be impossible because there was a giant curio cabinet blocking that entrance you would think you would remember opening a door and just walking face first into into a a cabinet slab of wood but maybe that's just us At this point, Debbie's parents are very upset that the police are taking this guy at his word and go straight to the media. And not just any media, 60 Minutes, which is a huge national news show. They want Debbie's case reopened, so they begin their own investigation and I guess eventually team up with Hugh Ainsworth. That part's kind of foggy. It's a a good team. They even get in contact with a woman named Betty Crawford who at one point was married to Lucas. In fact, they got married in Maryland on the same day as one of the murders he would later confess to in Pennsylvania. It's not really a long drive, but still you think you might be too busy celebrating your marriage to cross state lines to murder a stranger? Uh, he's he's got shit to do. He's busy. And we're classy. We're classy. We, we don't know. And he couldn't have been in Texas to murder Debbie Williamson because he was living with his half-sister in Maryland after being released from prison just a few days earlier. The Lemons even go to visit with Bob Prince, who felt that these people were just so upset about the death of their child, they were taking their anger out on the wrong people. The police. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. You're just mad because they did your job, and you don't want to admit you were wrong. So again, these poor people are brushed off by the police. On the sidelines of all this is Hugh, who has all this evidence that Lucas couldn't have committed all these murders, and a career as a writer.
1: He would literally have to be, like, a time traveler.
0: (laughs) He pitches the story to the Dallas Time Herald, who assigns him a journalist named Jim Henderson. (laughs) Initially, they thought they had only had enough proof for 15 to 20 of the murders, but that number would grow and grow. Just the slightest Slightest bit of digging, and they find time cards, dental appointments, which I questioned. <laughs> speeding for his one-two, <laughs> speeding tickets, banking records, notes he had written to people, and even a ticket for his dog shitting in a park. You know, things police should have discovered. Can't really describe yourself as this nonstop drifter when you have such a large paper trail. For even for pre-internet times, it was kind of impressive. I love how the cops have him committing a murder in Spokane, Washington on October 2nd and somehow made it all the way to an attempted abduction east of Houston on the 4th.
1: And it's not like he's flying either.
0: (laughs) In fact, throughout the entire month, he somehow drove 11,000 miles all over the country to murder people and didn't find any time to sleep. Think of the gas. (laughs) Yeah, because those cars just guzzled gas. I mean, gas was probably like 50 cents at the time, but still. The man (laughs) wasn't exactly rolling in it. And the cops somehow don't see a problem with this logic. Hume mentions a weird story about how while he was out traveling around finding more proof Lucas couldn't have committed murders, his home was broken into and tapes of conversations between himself and Lucas were stolen. Sometime later, he meets up with Boutwell, who apologizes about the tapes being stolen, even though he shouldn't have known about it. Right, because he didn't report it to the police. <laughs> Someone else who was in the last documentary series we covered is Vic's, Vic Fazell. He was the former dist- district attorney for Waco, Texas, where they had their own set of crimes Lucas confessed to. He looks over the confessions he has for the three murders and just right away is like, no, he didn't do these. One of them is a case where they knew who did it, but just didn't have enough to charge. Another one, the confession just didn't match to the crime scene. He asked the local sheriff's deputy Truman Simons to look into Lucas's whereabouts for the crimes, and he finds proof through the Texas criminal database that Lucas couldn't have committed the murders. He had either been in jail or there were tickets issued in other places for the dates. Truman tries to find more evidence for the other for other cases through the database, and now suddenly access is denied for anything related to Lucas. It's quite peculiar. It's a conspiracy. Okay, I think we will end it there for the first episode. Yos. <laughs> because yes. we're not even halfway through. <laughs> we are already at 30 minutes. We will be back with part two next week. Yes. Thank you for listening. Boy. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Talk To Me. The opening music is by Twisterium. For comments or suggestions, we can be reached by email at doctomepod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at pod and find a link to our Facebook group in the show notes. Thank you.